0: We are going to continue through the book of Daniel. So you can be turning to Daniel chapter 5 this morning. If you don't have a book, a Bible, we always have paperback ones at the back. Would love for you to be able to follow along. Today's uh, message, maybe a story that you're familiar with, maybe it's not. Uh, I'm going to give you a lot of historical background uh, today. So if you're like a, man, I love the history of the Bible and what's going on in time, this is going to be a sermon you'll get really geeked out about. And if you don't like those things, just remember, as one comedian said, books are the key to smart, okay? Um, so just, you know, uh, one, thank you for the one laugh, whoever that was. Thank you. <laughs> it makes me feel better. Um, so I talked a little bit about this uh Super Bowl today and and maybe you follow football maybe you don't uh but there's a big deal with this uh Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey love affair that's going on. I don't know if you've been following that, but Travis Kelsey plays for the Chiefs, and Taylor Swift obviously is a singer. My daughter says she's the greatest performer that the world's ever known. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. I get kind of of tired of the songs. I don't know if that's heresy this morning. But anyway, uh, regardless, I read an article uh, in the New York Post this week, and you may have seen it as well, Uh, the effect that Taylor Swift being on the screen for about a minute for the, for the fall, for the season of the Chiefs, the effect that's had on the NFL and for the Chiefs organization, I want to give you a few stats. Taylor Swift has generated $330 million for the NFL and the Chiefs brand since she started showing up on the TV. $330 million. There has been a 7% uptick in women watching the NFL worldwide. I mean, think about how many people watch the NFL. 7% is a gigantic number, just to see Taylor Swift. Uh, Kelsey's jersey, and he's not very good, I don't even like him that much, uh, is now in the top five of all jerseys. His brand, his, his apparel has gone up 400% since he started dating uh, Taylor Swift because everybody just wants a piece of the action. And here's what I was really funny, they got to the end of the article and they were interviewing uh, the president of the NFL and they were like, do you hope that Taylor's at the Super Bowl? He was like, yes. Yeah. So I was like, you think? <laughs> like, of course, you want her there. Um, here's the question I ask myself. Why? Like, why in the world can one person on a screen for 30 minutes generate that type of following? What is it in you and I that is drawn to that? And and, and here's what I think. I I believe the Bible teaches very clearly, well, you and I were created to worship God. And so there's something innately in us that longs to magnify, to lift up power and beauty and prestige and glory. Like it's it's in us. This is a God-given thing, but it's supposed to be focused on him. And yet what we find is this misplaced glory. And, and there's something in us, and, and look, Taylor Swift may, may not be your thing, but there's someone or something that if you were to meet them or be around them, you'd be like, this is amazing, right? There, there's something in us that now takes people, and we elevate fame and beauty and power and money. And look, those things by themselves, are not; th- those, are, those are not sinful things. <laughs> but we take something that's good, that is God-ordained, and we make it God. And we put it up and we say, this is ultimate. And, and there's a scripture in Daniel chapter five. Even if you're not familiar with the story, you've probably heard this particular line from Daniel chapter five. There's this moment where Daniel speaks to the king and he says, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And what I want us to do is look through this lens. I, I, I'm kind of visual and so I like the idea ...of this old school balance. And there's two ways I want us to, to read through chapter 5 this morning... ...thinking about these balances. The first is like the weight of our soul. And it's this idea that we have this king... ...and, and the weight of his soul is here... ...and what he's done is elevated all these things... ...all these idols, all, this, all that glitters in the world... ...he's put up here and yet it never balances out. It never holds the weight. It always leaves him wanting. It leaves us wanting... And then there's this moment really where God says, hey, beside my glory, in measurement with my glory and my name, you are left wanting. And there's two areas here of, of, of what we can give to the Lord never balances the scale. And what we put on the scales to hold up our soul Never balances the scales. Those are the two lenses I want us to look forward, uh, look through this morning as we look at chapter 5. I want to give you a couple of things that are going to be important for you. Here's the history. If you like background history, this is, uh, these are historical facts about what's going on in this moment. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king that we've talked about so far, is dead. He's been dead now for 15 to 25 years. And in this kingdom of Babylon, you've had kind of this turnover of kings. And no one's lasted very long, and they've been corrupt, and they've been taken over. There's been backstabbing, all these things. And now there's this king, Nabodias, who's in the reign. He's in charge. He has a son that he calls Belshazzar, not to be mistaken with Daniel's name, Belshazzar. I'll say them both the same. Regardless, um, they've become co-regents of Babylon now. And his, the dad is off fighting battles. He, he's never at home in the kingdom, in the city. So he leaves his son, Belshazzar, in charge to kind of rule as king. Now, what you need to know before we jump into this is, is this one thing. We're at the, chapter 5 is the demise of the Babylon Empire. Like, it falls in this chapter, this night, this story. And this isn't some made-up thing. We have historical documents that talk about this. But what you have is around the gates of Babylon, the, the, the Mede and the Persian empires come in. There's this king, King Cyrus, who's, who's kind of ruling and reigning, taking over the known world. And they have encircled now the great city of Babylon. And, and they found, and archaeologists have found this, they kind of found some of the ruins of the gate, or the, the, the wall of Babylon, and they said it was wide enough for four chariots to ride side by side on. And so what I want you to to imagine is the greatest empire in the world encompassed by this gigantic wall. And and through the middle of this wall, the Euphrates River comes in. And so literally they're supplied with water and needs to survive no matter what's around them. And they have the greatest wall and and security that any city's ever seen. And in the midst of that, we pick up in chapter 5 now with the sun in the city throwing this gigantic party for all these nobles, while the city is surrounded by the Medes and the Persians. In fact, just a few days earlier, his dad was in this massive battle with King Cyrus, lost and flees. And so now he's fleeing. He has flee fleeed? Fleet? fleeing, fleeing. I don't know. He gone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he left. And, and now you've got the Medes and the Persians around the wall. And the son decides, what a better time than now to throw this great party. And so let's pick up in chapter 5. It says this, King Belshazzar, this is the son, made a great feast for thousands of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, and, and just a pause, he's gonna call Nebuchadnezzar his father. Think about like Father Abraham. This is just some of the lingo that the Jews use, right? It's like he didn't have to be, actually be your father if, if you're in the lineage, he could be the father. And that, they, they believe, actually, that Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. So Nebuchadnezzar's father had taken out of the temple into Jerusalem, be brought that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And, and, and so here, here's what we've got. You've got Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. There's no doubt, I still believe in chapter 4, we saw Nebuchadnezzar being a God follower. And so the kingdom knows of this Jewish God, Yahweh. And now you've got this grandson, just a generation or two removed, who, who has decided, you know what? Um, th- this God, Yahweh, that, that I've heard about, he's nobody. He's nothing. He's nothing. And what he has put on the scale, the balance, is his power, his prestige, his might, and the might of his gods. To the point, here's what I think about. Man, there's no way that the Babylonian empires, they took over the world, didn't have this like room with obviously Yahweh's golden vessels from that temple. But how many other temples did they ransack? Like how much other gold and things from other temples and other gods did they have? And I think there's a reason why Belshazzar's like, hey, go to that room, and I want you to get, I want you to get the golden stuff from, from that, that God of the Jews. Bring that to me. And what I think is happening in this moment is, is his pride has led him to this place where we are surrounded by this great empire that's about to try to come into the gates. But, man, we're going to lift up the greatest party the world's ever seen. Because I will protect you and my power, our gates, our majesty, it will protect us. And our gods made of gold and silver and bronze and iron, they will protect us. And this God of Yahweh that we've heard about, we're going to drink from his designated things for worship just to show that our gods are greater. This is this massive moment of pride that's that's taking place. And so we continue on and they have this great feast. Uh, Everybody's getting drunk. There's a... A lot of lust, a lot of crazy things going on. In fact, the king isn't even supposed to drink with the subjects, right? So what he's done is he's gathered up everything that glitters in the world, power, fame, the the who's who. And he's gone, let's worship our gods and let's bask in our glory. And so it continues on, and here's what it says. Immediately, verse 5, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. Of the king's palace opposite the landstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and the king's thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Now, a couple things I want to tell you. One, just this moment of the knees knocking together, I love The, the the actual like literal translation is the joints of his loins were loosened. I like that a lot better. Some, some scholars would say this, actually, what that really means is, is dude peed his pants. And, and so what you've got is this king basking in his glory in the power of his gods, and, and now coming face to face with the God of Israel, he wets himself, right? All, all these things that he's trusting in have provided nothing for him. Now, before we go too much further, this, this isn't a main point, but I, I think this is important. Um, What we're going to see, man, there's a ton of archaeological and historical records that that show that these things happened, right? This isn't just some made-up story. And and here's what I found really interesting while I was studying this week. Um, Before the mid-19th century there was no writing about Belshazzar, right? So we have the story going on in chapter five and literally liberal scholars of of the Bible, historians go, there is no record of this Belshazzar guy. This is made up, this is fiction. The Bible is not real. That was like, that was the take on this whole thing that we're reading today forever. And then in the mid 19th century, they found 37 historical documents that talk about all this stuff, confirm all this stuff in an archeological dig. And here's what I thought. There has never been a time in history for us today that we have more access to things that prove the Bible as true uh, than ever before. And, and what's amazing to me is the more archaeological things they find, the more historical documents they find, the more scientific study they do, all it continues to do is elevate the authenticity and the truth of Scripture. And for you and I, we live in this time where it's like, man, God's not really even requiring blind faith for us to believe that this is what it is. Now, look, I, I get it. even in this story, right, it takes faith to believe that this hand shows up and writes on the wall. It takes faith that, that Daniel's able to interpret those things. But everything else around this story is historical and proven outside of the Bible. And here's what I want to tell you, man. We believe that, that God was able to raise his son Jesus from the dead Can we not also believe that he was able to take his word and keep it untainted for the last thousands of years? And the Bible is trustworthy. It is true. It's infallible. It's without error. It's inerrant. It's inspired. And God's able to do that. And the more like hard evidence we find, it just backs this thing up, which I love. Because now it's like, oh yeah, Belshazzar, that's a real story. True. Totally true. And for all of history, it was this made up thing that proved the Bible wasn't real. Like, How much more is ahead that we still don't even know that we're going to find? Um, Man, we can trust in the validity of God's word. Anyway, that's for free today. Let's keep going. So he pees himself, verse 7. The king called loudly to bring in the encanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads the writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom then all the king's wise men came in but none, uh, but they could not read the writing or make known to the kings to the king the interpretation then king belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed what he has offered up i think when we go back to this idea of the balance the scale belshazzar just offered up the greatest things that the world can give a robe of purple, this means royalty, like you are now the ruler of the greatest empire the world has ever seen. Third in command, it's my dad, there's me, and there's you. And we're gonna put gold around you. You have all the funds and all the resources you could ever have, and you have the power and the authority to rule over all the people. This is what's given up, right? <laughs> when we, we're like, man, that, that's what the world offers as the greatest things to hold our soul. And when Daniel shows up, it's amazing to me that he's like, I want nothing to do with that. That, that. That's empty to me. That will hold nothing for me. And so as this goes in, the queen, who we believe is Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, hears all the commotion in this great party and she shows up. Here's what she says. Then the queen, because of the words of the king and his lord, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom the Spirit of the Holy is the Spirit of the Holy Gods. We've heard this before, right? This was the words Nebuchadnezzar has used in other chapters. Within this Daniel, there's the Spirit of the Holy Gods. And she keeps going. That, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in him. Wisdom, like, I'm sorry, I skipped. Light and understanding. In wisdom like the wisdom of the gods who were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Verse 12. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. Verse 14 I heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you. I like that he took out holy gods, right? This is his whole point. He's trying to disprove the power of Yahweh specifically. He's not a holy God. You've got the spirit of the gods in you. And the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, Here's what's interesting to me. Daniel at this point is at least 80 years old. Grew up as a teenage boy in this exile ship within Babylon. Now he's 80. There is no doubt in my mind that in those 70 plus years, Daniel had sinned. He'd fallen short in places. He had made mistakes. And yet there's this overwhelming faithfulness to God, right? He's human. (laughs) He wasn't God. He wasn't Jesus. He's a type of Jesus. Uh, we'll look at that in a moment. But but he's just a man. And, and so here's what's interesting to me. At 80 years old, what is he known for? Like what is what does the queen and even Belshazzar say about Daniel? What is his imprint on the people around him? He's full of light when there's darkness. He's able to bring this wisdom that, that doesn't even make sense among most people. Uh, he has this excellent uh, spirit within him the, the the actual word is ruah, and it means extraordinary spirit. There's something extraordinary about Daniel. And, and, and here's what I believe. How did he get there? It wasn't just because he had these huge moments. I mean, that helps. But I believe it was just faithfully living for God and, and living with purpose, being determined to not bow down to foreign gods, this faithfulness day in and day out in the place that God had him planted. And he was not where he wanted to be. And he didn't want to be in the Babylonian captivity uh, under these pagan gods. And yet, what did he do? He lived faithfully day in and day out to the Lord. And it made an extraordinary impact on the people around him. And, and here's the question I think we have to ask ourselves. <laughs> like, like if we went to your job and said, who is this man or who is this woman? If you came to my job, or you're at, well, you're at my job. But y'all could ask each other. Like who is this man, who is this woman? What, what are people saying about us? Like, what, what is the impact of our name? Are they gonna say, man, this is a person that when things get really difficult, that they have this weird piece about them that I don't understand. There's a wisdom and there's an understanding and there's a knowledge about them that I, that I feel like's a mystery to some people. I, want, I don't even know what it is. I see that there's someone that brings light into the darkness, right? We're supposed to be the representatives of Jesus. And this is our call to live faithfully each day not perfect but faithfully each day to the lord where he has planted us and it may be a place you love it may be a place you hate but he's put you there for his glory and so daniel lives faithfully to the lord and people see that in him daniel is this shadow of jesus right like he, he is the intermediary. God has placed him as an intermediary between the Lord, Yahweh, and this pagan people that know nothing about him. And, and Daniel's supposed to be this representative of this different kingdom, this, this God who is all-powerful, the most high God who brings light into darkness. And this is all giving this picture of who Jesus was. He's the light of the world. He brought this wisdom and this, uh, the, this, these teachings that this dumbfounded people. He talked about a different kingdom, an eternal kingdom that would live forever. Daniel calls the kings of Babylon to turn from sin and turn to God, and so does Jesus. But Jesus goes one step further than just calling us to turn from sin. He pays for sin on the cross. Like all of this is the shadow of what's ahead. God was painting this picture of the Messiah that would come, and Daniel is his representative, as you and I now are representatives of Christ to be light, to be wisdom. To have purpose. And so he tells Daniel, Hey, I want you to interpret the dream. Verse 14: I heard uh, that you had the spirit of the gods in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise man and the cantors have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you give you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation. And look, he offers up what to put on the scale. And you shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. I love how Daniel responds. Then Daniel (laughs) Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God. This This is what... That Daniel is written for, to show who the most high God is. Gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Verse 19. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he would kill, and whom he he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he would raise up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened... So that he dealt proudly, he, brought down, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. And the dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew of heaven. Right. This is all the last chapter, last week. Until what? The same theme that we've seen in nearly in every chapter. Until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. F- for a moment, this keeps showing up for a purpose. Like, why is Daniel writing this stuff down? It's because the people of God are in a really dark time. They're in this place where it's like, where, where has the kingdom gone? Where is the king at? Where, why has God left us in this place? Why are these other rulers ruling over the people of God? Where, where's the darkness Where's the light in the midst of the darkness? And Daniel continues to remind them, man, in God's power and sovereignty, he's doing exactly what he means to do for his purposes. And so he's trying to remind the Israelites, do not give up, do not lose faith. Just because you feel a certain way, just because your circumstances look a certain way, this does not dictate the truth of who God is. God is faithful. He's the most high God and he rules the nations. And he puts over them who he will. And, and church, I want to tell you this. In a micro level, like in your life, and if you feel those moments of darkness, like where's the Lord? Why, why is he allowing these things? He's still the most high God that rules the nations of men. And when we look even at a macro level, at, at where we're at, in the culture of America, the culture of the world right now, right? It wants to instill in us some fear, like Where's the Lord? And man, God is still the most high God ruling over the nations, doing exactly what he desires today. He's doing exactly what he desires to make his name known and bring forth the purity of his people for his glory and our good. He's doing that. And so we can stay trustworthy. We can stay trusting in him because he is trustworthy. And so he continues in verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, You have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. I think this is important. What what Daniel just said is, look, your your dad, your granddad, he didn't know who Yahweh was. All the stuff that went down, God was trying to show him his name. But you, you know the stories. You've seen what happened to your granddad. You, You know better. You know that he is the most high God. And yet you continue to rebel against him. And I think this is important for you and I. Look what it continues to say. 23, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, if you underline this, a great part, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hands is your breath and who all your ways you have not honored. He's like, man, you know better. <laughs> You've already seen God on display. And, and now you're, you're honoring gold and silver and bronze and all these different things, these gods, who have no breath and know nothing. And yet, the God who holds your breath in his hands, who holds your steps, your ways in his hands, you have not honored. And we just sing the song, right? Right? It's your breath. It's in my lungs. So I, I give you all my praise. Like we, we just sang that. And I love a good story where like this king who, who is a moron gets what's coming to him. And it's like, yeah, you know, you were so proud and all these things. And now you've peed yourself and you're in the Lord and he's about to take your life. Like that's good stuff. But I think for, for us, are we not a people that have seen the glory of God on full display and yet in our balances, continually put the things that glitter in the world as most important and we turn from the God who has breath in our lungs who gives us our breath who we sing about on Sunday and yet we live a lot more practically like Belshazzar and what do I mean by that man his idols his trust was found wanting dude was full of fear and angst in the face of a horrible situation and here we are as Christians going, we know that you're the Most High God, that you rule above the nations and that you've saved us, and we are your people, and we know you're a faithful God, and yet situations in our life come that reveal what's sitting on the balances. because we're full of angst and worry and fear. And what if this person thinks this about me? Or or, or what if this situation goes this way? And we begin to grasp for control and go, man, I've got to make sure and manipulate these situations to go the way I want them. And really, we are no different than Belshazzar. We sing on Sundays, it's your breath in my lungs. And we live our life the rest of the time going, hey, let me put all that is gold and glitters on the scale to satisfy my soul. And it doesn't, right? We felt that. And so we have two choices. (laughs) We either continue to try to accumulate more of those things to satisfy, and it never comes down. Or we turn to the Lord who balances the scales. I I love what Dale Davis says. He says, whenever God brings a man to the end of himself, smashing all his props and wasting his idols, it's a favorable moment indeed. But there's a caveat. If he will but see it. What he's saying is the Lord is so kind to allow us to keep stacking stuff up on the scale, hoping that it will satisfy our soul. And it just—it almost does the opposite. It keeps getting further and further away. And he says, the moment that the Lord reveals to us that these things will not hold us up is one of the gracious, most gracious things God can do in us. But we have to see what to replace it with. And that's Jesus. It, it reminds me of the, the rich fool parable that jesus tells right and the guy looks around he's like man i have all this stuff my barns can't even hold everything i've got i'm gonna build new barns I'm gonna fill that up i'm gonna eat drink and be merry and jesus tells this story he says you're a fool because tonight your soul is going to be asked of you like this is what's happening with this king at the end of this story he's going to die spoiler alert the kingdom's going to fall at this party and in his mind, he said, I'm going to give you purple and gold and power. And, and Daniel goes, those things will not balance the scales. You fool, tonight your soul will be asked of you. That's why Jesus says, what does what it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet profit or lose his soul? It's, it's that same principle of our need for Jesus to balance the scales. And so it finishes up, and here's what happens. 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. We're finally going to know. What does the writing say? 25, and this is the writing that was inscribed, mine, mine, tekel parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mine, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought them to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. So far, the story has shown his idols, uh, his glory was found wanting. Now it's not that. Now it's him. You have been found wanting. In in relation to God's glory and majesty, you have been found wanting. It doesn't balance out. And he says this. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold and was put around his neck. And the proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, uh, being about 62 years old. Now, here's how I kind of want to finish in in the short time we have left. I want to share with you some historical stuff that's pretty amazing that I think we can still learn from. Um, Darius most people believe, is the, the Mede name for Cyrus. Cyrus was his Persian name. Darius was his Median name or however you'd say that, plural. Um, and so what you have now is King Cyrus, that very night, took over Babylon. The huge gates that were in, impenetrable. He comes in and swiftly and suddenly takes the kingdom of Babylon. I want to tell you, uh, there's a historian, Herodias, who writes about this night. And he says it happened like October 12th, 536 B.C., somewhere in there. And, and here's what's amazing. And I think there's a principle that we can, we can learn something from here. Uh, I told you the Euphrates River came into the kingdom. And what Cyrus decided to do was, hey, let's divert the water out of the river so that it begins to go down. Down enough that we can wade in it, wade under the walls. And it says the history says that they literally came under the walls and took the kingdom in a moment. And literally, there, there are Mede, uh, Mede and Persian historians that write about, as they came under the walls and began to take the city, they realized that they were having some great party that everybody was drunk at and no one was paying attention. And here's what I think about. We, we've talked about this idea that sin will numb our senses to the things of God. And you've got this kingdom and this king taking part in all of this sin and the very thing that they thought would bring them sustenance, the Euphrates River, is actually the thing the enemy uses to destroy them. I mean, the Bible talks about that, if we sow to the flesh, we will reap destruction. It's a principle of God. That's why the Lord calls you and I to pursue after holiness and righteousness. It's not just so we can go, "Hey, we're good Christians. That's not, not the purpose. The purpose is to glorify the name of God, and it's for our good. It keeps us from destruction. And it's amazing to me, right, like if you and I were in the city, hopefully we wouldn't be foolish enough to like look at this giant river and go, hey, dude, that thing keeps going down like a foot a minute. Something, we might need to check out what's happening upstream. No one even sees it. They're numb to what's going on around them, and the enemy uses that to destroy them. And and sin works the same way, church. If we find ourselves entangled in the things of the world, we will be numb to the attacks of the enemy. And in the end, the very thing that we're trusting in, he will use to destroy us. It happens over and over and over again. And so that's why God calls us to have a clear mind and renew our mind on the things of him. This isn't this call that we're going to be able to live perfect, but it's that we're pursuing the things of God. Because we have an enemy that longs to crush and destroy us. And he will use the very things that we're entangled in to do that. And so it happens for the Babylonian Empire. But there's hope. And here's how I want to finish. I, I find this fascinating. I, I told you that Jeremiah the prophet, that he was prophesying during this time. And, and he wrote before this happened a, a, a few things that were going to happen to the kingdom of Babylon. And I just want you to see this. When we think about God, who is the, the most high God, uh, who rules over the nations of mankind and puts over who he will, who, who is the same God that's still ruling and reigning our lives the one that says you, you don't have to be fearful you don't have to be full of angst you don't have to worry I'm working all things out for my glory and you're good listen to what he prophesies through Jeremiah this is pretty amazing to me Jeremiah 51:8. before all this happened he begins to prophesy about the fall of Babylon he says suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken well for her take balm for her pain and perhaps she may be healed he continues in verse 11 look what he says Sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes. So Jeremiah has already said, hey, I'm going to tell you which kingdom's about to take you over before it ever happens. Because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord. The vengeance for what? His temple. How, how amazing is it? Like, Belshazzar says, hey, give me, the, give me the golden vessels of the temple and let's worship our gods with it. He's like, I'm going to sit... Before, way before it happens, I'm going to send the Medes in and I'm going to take vengeance for what you're, how you're defaming my name and my temple. 150 years before it happens, Isaiah prophesies, look at this one, Isaiah 1 through three. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, dude's not even born yet, calls him by name, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that the gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. Now, pause. What are the exalted things that Belshazzar is praying to and worshiping? Gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron. Look, Look what this prophecy says. I'm going to level those exalted things. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. It's like this this party's happening and they're worshiping these things. And 150 years before God said, Man, I'm gonna come and level all those exact things to show you who I am. It says, I'll give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and the secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. And this is the God that we serve. He's still ruling and reigning in our lives. Like he, he's not pivoting with, with the events of humanity. Like he's already said, my purpose will will, will come to pass, and nothing will change that. And he says, And you're mine, and I'm gonna work all things out that you are with me forever. Here's how I want to end. Here's what's amazing. You you have these two kings that are lifting up on the balances the 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 all the things that are gold and glitter, and then there's this moment where he says, No, it's not just it's not just your pride, it's not just your idols, it's you who is wanting. You were left lacking. And and here's what we need to know, church. Every single human being will stand on this scale before the Lord's glory. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I know you know that scripture, but it continues. And here's what it says this scale looks like in comparison to God's glory. That that It's it's so far off. There's nothing we can add to this to, to, to measure out, but it continues. And it says in verse 24... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. His purchasing us all of a sudden begins to balance these scales. 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a payment by his blood to be received by faith. What happens to those that place their faith in Jesus? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What that says is Jesus has every right to condemn and to judge our sinfulness. He's just. And yet also he is the justifier. And he says for those that place their faith in Jesus and we step off of the scale before the Lord, Jesus steps on and he's the only one that's not found lacking. And he doesn't just balanced the scale for us. And he, he paid with his blood for our sin so that our name and his righteousness might coincide together. And man, every single one of us will stand before the Lord. And this is salvation. This is our hope. That Jesus balances the scale. That you and I are now not found wanting if you're in Christ. Not because you're a good Christian. Not because you do all the things. It's because Jesus was perfect in our stead and we see these great kings in this book and isn't it amazing like the things that we put at the top of the scale all that glitters jesus is the opposite of that when he comes he says he's gentle and lowly he's a carpenter like has no resources no finances had a really small following in one of the smallest places on earth like who is this guy He has no resources to throw for himself a banquet or do these things, and yet he balances the scale. The complete opposite of what we think the world says will balance the scales of our souls. And here's what's amazing the Bible says that if you put your faith in Jesus, there will come a day that we will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This giant feast, another giant party. And it says that you and I who have had the scales balanced because of Jesus will enter into the presence of Jesus and we will feast together. But there won't be this moment where we're raising our name, we're raising the things of the earth. The the collective cry of the people will be, Jesus, you are worthy. And there's not going to be some enemy at the gates about to come in and take this moment from us. Death and sickness and disease and the hurts and the pain, they will all have subsided and all things will be made right for everlasting to everlasting. This is the call to put our faith in Jesus who is the great mediator between God and man for you and I that we might have hope. Let's pray together. And so God, we thank you for Daniel chapter five, this book that points towards you. (laughs) Uh, a greater Daniel, this, this book that points towards uh, something that actually balances the scales of our, uh, of our souls, but not even our souls, but our, our, our salvation before your glory. And so God, I, I pray that we'll live a life of constantly looking at the things we're placing on the scale, asking you to show us where it's not you, and we remove that, and we continue to ask you by the power of the Spirit. to to sit where you deserve to sit. And I pray that we'll live lives of of faithfulness day in and day out in the places you have planted us, even if it's a place we don't want to be because we know you're working extraordinary things for your kingdom through your servants. And God, I pray for the person in this room that doesn't know you. There will be a day where where they stand on a scale next to your glory and there is no act of goodness, of purpose, of of things that that will balance that scale, but you've, you've come and stepped in in their place, and you offer up this gift of salvation where, Jesus, you will stand on the scale for us and call us righteous because you are righteous. And so I pray that if there's someone here that doesn't know you, they'd come to faith today. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.